Munit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Kesha Podcasts. Jonathan, I politely, usually politely ask you how you're doing. I must say that this week I'm more urgently concerned about the health and the well-being of Her Majesty. Yes, you're not wrong, actually, to be concerned. People here are a little bit concerned. She's 96 years old. And this week, she was a no-show for the one event in the year which she never, ever, ever misses. And that is the state opening of Parliament, a new session of Parliament. It's a big ceremony, parliamentary pageantry, uh, where normally, you know, arrives in the state coach, uh, which looks like something out of a fairy tale, and wears the big robes and, and the crown. And... She was not there for that. She let her son, the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles, deputise instead. And, you know, people know how seriously she takes her role as um, head of state. Uh, and so for her to miss this one formal thing, I mean, it's one thing to miss the various, you know, going to Ascot and watching horses race or whatever. Um, this is different. And, uh, you know, the statement that came from the palace is that she has episodic mobility issues and so there was some talk of saying okay she's a very proud woman if it involved you know being there via a wheelchair maybe she didn't want to do that there's talk that uh, you know others are saying uh maybe this is how it's going to be uh powers almost of the regency like uh, when you have to have a sort of caretaker monarch were passed mm. to her son and look, she's 96. So mm -hmm. this is, people are inevitably thinking like this. And I've noticed conversations where people, even those who say, look, I'm not a royalist, are saying, wow, this is a big change that is coming. And I sat next to somebody today who is 68 years old and said, I've only ever lived in the lifetime of one monarch. And <laughs> this will be a very, you know, it will be a huge thing when it comes to this country. And so people are, are no talking about it. And today, the thing that happened this week was definitely a moment. Right. It was a little bit like seeing how the future is going to look like. And of course, I am talking, my co-host, uh, to any of our listeners who don't know, wrote his first book called, uh, Remind Me, Jonathan? Well, bring, I think... Uh, I, I, bring I, Back I, the Revolution, the case for the British bring, Republic. It, that's right. If bring that Home the right. Revolution. Bring, I'm sorry, um, Bring Home the Revolution. The, and the, the sub the but the subtitle, and I'm looking because I have an image of the cover framed behind me is the case for a British Republic. And it's true that, you know, I have long argued that Britain should elect its head of state like every other normal country. And rather than living in some sort of Cinderella fairy tale, that said, there's no getting away from the fact that she has been the most extraordinary head of state and has provided kind of emotional continuity. And like the guy who I was talking to, you know, somebody who is late in life and has only ever known this one person as a constant, it's very stabilising in an era of change. And so it's unsettling to imagine the world and Britain and the life and life without her. So we wish her uh, nothing but good health and happiness. And uh, I was we probably do. being imp impolite by not asking you how you are. So I apologize for that. Just no, that's all right. That. I think, you know, in the grand hierarchy of things, <laughs> you'll need, I am a mere subject rather than the monarch. And therefore, my health and well-being hey. 
comes in this podcast, down. in this podcast, my friend, I think that's arguable. But in the larger world out there, okay, I agree with that. I agree with it, that. Yeah. So, will we pass on from discussing monarchs who aren't feel well, feeling well to governments who aren't doing well? Let's Maybe? do that. That's a very natural segue, Yonit. So let's do it. <laughs> t- tell me. Go on. I think so, too. So, look, the, the Israeli government was facing quite a precarious political situation this week. It is still alive and kicking, or rather, I should probably say alive and limping. Um, what happened in a nutshell or maybe since we're talking about Israeli uh, politics in a nutcase, uh, is this this week. Uh, the Likud, the biggest party in opposition, of course, former Prime Minister Netanyahu's party, was seeking an opportunity to um, basically present or submit a bill to dissolve parliament and go to elections. Now, for a second there, it seemed like that part of the coalition, Ram, the United Arab List, might do a no-show and the bill would pass. At the last minute, however, Mansour Abbas's party said he will give the coalition another chance, so they live to see... Another week. But essentially, Jonathan, since this coalition lost its majority, every MK, every member of Knesset could decide every day to threaten the stability of uh, of, of this government. Now, um, I do want to talk a little bit about Ram and Mansour Abbas, uh, because this is obviously a very interesting story. And again, firstly, it's I think it, it's possible to claim that Mansour Abbas is the boldest, bravest, most interesting politician operating in Israel today. Right, he is nothing less than a revolutionary. He is a man that says, of course, for the first time as an Arab-Israeli, sitting in on a Zionist coalition, he is saying quite clearly, I know Israel is a Jewish state, and I know it will always be a Jewish state, but I want to improve the lives of the Arab minority, and I want to have to, to make sure they're better integrated. This is one important thing to say. At the same time, we have to remember that Ram, the United Arab List, is an Islamist uh, party. And the fact, and there's a difference here, Jonathan, and I think we should maybe make that point between a government with the United Arab List and a government that is dependent upon the United Arab List. And since I know you see every broadcast I anchor this week, (laughs) when at eight o'clock, listeners, he does not watch any of my broadcasts, just so you you know. So anyway, this week on on Tuesday, the This is uh, a wound, isn't it? This is a wound that is opening up here. Uh, I can feel it. I don't think it's opening up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't think that is the ver- the exact uh, uh, grammatic uh, uh, tense that I would use. So anyway, uh, this uh, this week on Tuesday, 8 o'clock, the news opens up with a live shot of the Ashura Council sitting and debating, right, the um, uh, devising board, let's say, of the of uh, the Islamist party, waiting and deciding, deliberating whether or not they will stay part of this coalition. So the, w- what is the message that is transmitted to Israelis is Naftali Bennett parenthetically, the former head of the settler movement, is now dependent upon the Ashura Council. And that is a big difference when you're trying to sustain a government in this country, definitely if there uh, is a conflict in in Al-Aqsa, definitely if there's a terror wave. This is something that's beginning to become a problem. And at the end of the day, the big failure, and I'm not writing the obituary in this government yet, but the big failure of Naftali Bennett was not to succeed in expanding his government and arrive at this point where he is dependent upon Mansour Abbas's party. And the optics of that. I mean, I'm absolutely, you know, that's a classic only in Israel there, because of course, one solution would have been for there no, to be no cameras, for there to be no visual of his fate being in the hands of a ruling council of an Islamist party. I mean, you can just see, especially when, and it's happened, you know, since we were last together, there has been a terror attack in Israel. You know, there mm-hmm. was one obviously late last week, too late for us to include in last week's podcast, but in that environment, obviously no one is drawing any link between the people in that meeting, the ruling council of Mansour Abbas's party and the, the, those killings. But 
the way the politics in that country is going to play out, of course it's a disaster uh, when national feelings are running high to mm -hmm. feel that um, uh, this group who are, you know, for the first time in government have the fate of the prime minister in their hands. Uh, you know, that to me, it, you just think if Netanyahu were in this hole and corner, there's no way he was going to allow that visual anywhere near a TV screen, it seems to me. He'd have closed down that possibility. Well, I I, I don't know. But, the, the, you know, I remember when Trump, President Trump used to say that I can shoot someone in Fifth Avenue and it didn't matter. The first person who had went into negotiations, who made this kosher, right, so to speak, these negotiations with Ram was Netanyahu. I don't know how much he would suffer from it. But again, when you're setting up a government in Israel that is part left wing and has for the first time an Arab party, you're going to get and receive criticism for not being tough enough on terror. And, the, and it's not a big leap to make, right, to say, oh, maybe you're not being tough enough on terror because you have this party in your, in your government. So it is a very problematic, it's a very precarious place to be at. And I think what they're trying to do is buy time, right? And they thought, again, maybe the Haredim will join the government. That is the most important thing that Naftali Bent was trying to do and he failed. Maybe Netanyahu will sign a plea bargain and he'll leave the political scene. All of this didn't happen. And and now it's kind of like a countdown. We're kind of like waiting for this uh, government to basically unravel. Now, I just want to make one more technical point. It's not actually a technical point, but it is important because what we're going to see play out in, in the coming weeks, if indeed we're going to see an unraveling of this government, and this is important to say, is a question of who will be the people who vote to dissolve parliament. Because under the coalition agreement, I'm going to make try and make this as simple as possible. It is Israel. But if there are at least two people from the right side of the coalition who vote to dissolve the parliament, then Yair Lapid becomes the head of the government at that moment, okay? He will be the transition prime minister if Israel goes to election. And the other way around, if there are at least two people who vote to dissolve uh, the parliament from the left side, including Ram, then Naftali Bennett stays on as prime minister. So this will also be a little bit of a battle moving into the foreground if we indeed see uh, the coalition unravel. Although I think it's I've not you enough with Israeli no, politics. No, no, not at all. It's not as if, I was just going to say, it's not as if that's such a great prize to be the leader of a <laughs> Well, Netanyahu defeated... stayed on as a transition prime minister for more than a year because we had a cycle of election and then as I know, he couldn't form a that's government. That's true. So, so you can stayed actually, on. You can, so, you, you can know, there is, uh, this actually has a consolation prize. There are worse prizes. You know, we're talking about the politics uh, inside Israel. I'm guessing that people listening to this from outside Israel would think that that isn't the most important thing that happened this week, and maybe expecting us to lead uh, with a very different event instead. Uh, and that is, of course, the shooting dead, the fatal shooting uh, in Jenin of the Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, Al Jazeera TV journalist, a woman who's had a huge following uh, on Al Jazeera for, I think, two decades or more, uh, shot in the neck while covering an Israeli raid in the Jenin refugee camp. Al Jazeera have directly accused Israeli forces of killing her in cold blood, they say, and stressing that she had been clearly identified as a journalist wearing a press jacket. And the Washington Post and others have interviewed multiple eyewitness who insists that there was no crossfire that she was caught in, despite Israeli assertions to that effect. And in, in fact, there was no fighting in the area at the moment just before she was shot. I mean, this is, and there's a statement from, uh, you know, the Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, obviously saying that the shooting occurred while the IDF were engaged in counterterrorism operations and that they will 
get to the bottom of who did it. Um, but, you know, there has been a bit of subtle finger-pointing and not, and not so subtle at Palestinians themselves. And, and the PM, Naftali Bennett, said armed Palestinians shot in an inaccurate, indiscriminate and uncontrolled manner, referring to the minutes leading up to this. Around the world, people will say, well, look, any death is obviously a tragedy and hugely significant. But some deaths do get more attention and news coverage than others. And that is just a, a fact of life. And therefore, a journalist being killed will always get more attention from other journalists. I would say a woman being killed will get more attention than a man. Um, and, you know, and obviously a child would be even more. But a woman who was known massively to the entire Arab world, known and trusted as a recognised face, that is going to get huge attention. And so it has proved this has really gone around the world. And I, I would suggest would only get bigger. Um, and this is going to be a very big problem for people who want to defend Israel, who want to say that, uh, and want, you know, who, who insist that attention on Israel is somehow unmerited and undeserved. A killing of a journalist in the circumstances as they currently seem, and it's not just Al Jazeera saying it, as I said, it's the Washington Post. This is a tragedy for her and her family, but I also think it's going to be, uh, this is going to open up, and we're going to talk about it a bit, a whole lot of more attention and discussion and, and focus on the occupation and what it entails. Even when we think the news agenda has moved on to Ukraine and other things, it's right back to this topic. Look, I mean, first and foremost, uh, this is a terrible tragedy. I mean, a, a journalist is not supposed to die while covering a story. She was, as you said, incredibly well known in the Arab world. She worked as a journalist for more than 20 years. She was very adamant also about being on ground as close as possible to where the story is, no, no matter how dangerous it can go. And of course, the ramifications of the story even go beyond the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, because as you said, it's it's questions about being a journalist and how safe or unsafe it is for journalists to, to uh, report and, and take risks that they take. Now, the interesting thing to me, and I, obviously I can't say I'm a, an objective observer here, because I'm both a journalist and an Israeli, but I mean, the amazing thing is, first of all, how the minute this happened, truth took a back seat, right? Both sides had their own narratives. They coalesced in seconds. And as you said, right, Al Jazeera completely saying Israel assassinated her, that those were the words. And Naftali Bennett, the Israeli prime minister, saying it appears like armed Palestinians were there and we were fighting terror. Again, Israel's in a terror wave and Janine is a, is a, a hub of, of terror. And it looks like they were responsible for the unfortunate death. Now, look. It is a complicated thing, and I have to admit, I don't know what happened there. Uh, and I think the ideal situation would be an inquiry of Israelis, Palestinians, and an international mediator. I'm not sure that's what's going to happen. So again, I don't know what happened. Um, I, I can say that from what I have observed over a, a very long journalistic career, either in battle zones or observing the Israeli military, I find it um, highly unlikely, a situation in which Israelis, soldiers in a combat operation, a special unit, Duvdevan, in the middle of a shootout, right? They're Molotov cocktails, uh, there's weapons, they're, they're shooting, they're, and they turn around, they see a journalist, and they shoot her. I'm, 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 I'm having it hard to believe. Again, I'm saying as honestly as possible, I do not know what happened there. What I want to believe is that the situation uh, didn't happen. And I would be very happy if this, if we will ever know the truth. 
You have Israelis, especially Israeli journalists, being very, very sorry about this. You have the head of the IDF chief of staff, Aviv Kuchavi, saying he regrets this. Again, not taking responsibility yet, but says he, he regrets this. I think that is an important thing to, to hold on to. But as you said, this is, this is going to be a very big problem. Besides the, the personal tragedy, it's going to be a very big problem uh, for Israel because the truth doesn't even matter. Even if they're going to come out and say, okay, the, it's a Palestinian bullet. I don't think it matters. At this I point. think what's in the background, though, and the reason why there's no confidence about an investigation mm-hmm. is an uncomfortable reality that when there are these cases that that get huge attention, and of course we you know we know that there is violence that goes on quietly at a low level, uh, you know where people are killed. I think the figure stands at around 50 Palestinians killed in this year in 2022. It's these single cases that get people's attention, but when they get attention, they very rarely end in really stiff consequences on the Israeli side. And I've got in my mind the famous case inside Israel, obviously, of Elor Azaria, the medic um, who shot a Palestinian in Hebron in 2016. You know, Azaria was found guilty. It wasn't murder. Palestinian terrorist. uh, Downgraded, yeah, Palestinian terrorist. mm -hmm. You're right to say that. Um, It was downgraded to uh, from murder to manslaughter. He was sentenced to 18 months in prison, but was released after nine months uh, mm-hmm. for doing that. Now, you're absolutely right that the Palestinian uh, he killed had himself stabbed an Israeli soldier. The current case is of a journalist mm-hmm. who posed no threat. But I, but what it goes to is this point that there yes. isn't that sense that you can say, okay, the Israeli authorities are investigating it. Let the wheels of justice turn. Let the process play itself out, and then we can be satisfied with the outcome. I think that is partly even with the war of the narratives point that we're talking about, it's partly why these cases are so neuralgic for everyone, because there isn't that background sense that, okay, justice will be done. I don't think people think it will be done, even if it is possible to get to the bottom of these facts. And it won't just stay as an individual case. As I said at the top, this will be seen as a symptom of an of an ongoing situation that is as old as I am, you know, this occupation that has gone on and on and on since 1967, on it goes. And, you know, the word occupation, it always implies something temporary, and this is feeling so untemporary. And so cases like this will keep happening. So I just wanted to say that uh, one thing is that Elor Azaria, which you mentioned, is not only a completely different case, but is, I think, standout story. And it tore the Israeli society apart. There are all kinds of ramifications of that. But that is an exception to, I think, how Israeli soldiers uh, act in battlefield. I think that every Israeli, and I definitely among them, regret any loss of innocent life uh, on both sides. I I will remind you that Israel, in six weeks, uh, has seen the murder of 19 Israelis uh, with, with guns, axes, and knives. That is what led to the operation in Janine, which was doesn't, wasn't a spontaneous raid because that's what Israeli soldiers like to do. But I agree with you completely that this is bringing forth the, uh, the conversation back to this uh, story. And I would also point out that Israel in some circles is always guilty 
before anything else. And so, of course, it's going to be a problem. I think it also took some time for the Israeli uh, officials to understand how grave the situation is. And yes, it's going to to bring forth a lot of attention and going to be something to deal with. I will say, uh, uh, finally, that when you see representatives, for example, like uh, Ilhan Omar, who of course said uh, she was killed by Israeli military, although, again, we are discussing this now on Thursday afternoon, we don't know this for sure yet, because ballistic uh, testing has not come out, but she says Israel... Uh, is provided by 3.8 billion in military aid with no restrictions. What will it take for accountability? We might be hearing more and more of these voices, and that is, of course, very uh, precarious for for Israel itself. This episode is fun, Jonathan. It's uh, just quote, all laughs to, with you and me. To quote Murphy Brown, this is fun. Maybe I should try. Trying on bathing suits under fluorescent lights now. Um, so, um, what is our next topic, Jonathan? We Knock are, yourself we out. Feel you're we you're should, on a roll. We, we're on a roll. It's about the Supreme Court. Oh, look, oh, let, why don't we just make this all part of the same thing, really? Because it is. It's, one, it's my little theme of this week, which is one way or another, this thing does not go away. 55 years old, it will be in June. I'm talking about the occupation. That is because there's this decision of the High Court of Justice uh, in Israel, um, which is to permit the expulsion from their homes. of It's about a 1,000 Palestinian residents in the uh, southeast of the West Bank because the IDF, the Israeli military, wants to have it use the area for training and firing ranges and the like. Uh, as a result, eight Palestinian villages will be destroyed. Now, the reason why that's uh, extra invidious is the Jewish settlers, the hundreds of them who live in the area, will not be uh, and have not been asked to leave their homes or settlements to make way for this military area. So it's the same area. You're not saying all people in the area have got to get out because we want to use it as for a firing zone. You're saying Palestinians have got to get out, settlers can stay. Haaretz, very left-leaning, but absolutely um, storied and respectable Israeli newspaper, has said, with the imprimatur of the High Court, Israeli apartheid has been legitimised in this area of the South Hebron Hills. That was their editorial just a few days ago. I think it's quite a big deal they've said that. I think the event itself is a big deal, but it goes to this same point, that this is a very warping, distorting thing that happens to Israeli society and the Israeli state because of an occupation that is uh, five decades plus old. So, um, first of all, I want to point out that in this specific case that you're talking about, 19 Israeli experts of international law actually wrote an opinion, in Hebrew it's called Giluidat, about this decision, saying that under international law it's very hard to justify this sort of violation of human rights for a military training ground. Actually, it's quite clear, this opinion that they wrote and, and published, uh, saying that the interpretation of international law made by the court was quite simply wrong. So, first of all, sometimes courts make mistakes. Make, yeah. make uh, mistakes. Uh, secondly, I think if I understand correctly, there might be another uh, uh, deliberation on this topic. But again, I, I kind of want to try and zoom out uh, and say something uh, more general and I think important about the role of the Supreme Court in Israel and in Israeli society, and Supreme Court and the High Court of Justice. They sit in these sort of two uh, hats in the Israeli Supreme Court because this has also been the week 
that the MK member of Knesset from United Tour Judaism uh, um, named Itzhak Pindrus said that he wants to blow up the Supreme Court. And, and, there, and we should just explain to, that United Tour Judaism is a Haredi, ultra-Orthodox party. Right, right. And, and we need to say that there has been a growing... Uh, th- on the one hand, yes, there's been a lot of uh, criticism of the courts from the left, but also from the right, saying that the court has been too, uh, let's say, supportive, too leaning towards uh, liberal Israel. The court, we have to say, the Supreme Court has been very active for women's rights and LGBTQ rights and generally protecting, seen to be protecting the values of, of liberal Israel. Um, and this rose to the occasion of a lot of people, a lot, especially lawmakers on the right, uh, criticizing the Israeli Supreme Court. This huge debate inside uh, Israel. At the end of the day, I mean, we can go into where, when, and how, and where the where the court is right and where it's wrong. I think people criticize the court because it's not right wing enough or not left wing enough. Basically, are criticizing the court to, for daring to have an opinion that isn't theirs. I would quote uh, Menachem Begin uh, on this, who was never considered to be uh, a leftist, right? When he was uh, asked uh, this reaction to the court decision that went against him on the settlement matter, he said there are judges in Jerusalem, and I think that's still true. A uh, biblical of reference. Can argue. Yes, exactly. And I think you can argue uh, against certain decisions and it, from the left and from the right. I just think it's incredibly important to say that the role of the court in Israeli society is still a bastion of democracy. It's still something that is keeping this society together in that very tense balance between being a Jewish state and a democratic state. And I think that that is also important to state in a week in which uh, that decision was made, as you uh, stated it. I've always loved that quote, actually, of Menachem Begin. Yes. Because it's, it, I mean, and what's really interesting is what a rule of law guy he was. And mm-hmm. there was a pati- and, and his son went on to represent that strand within within mm-hmm. the sort of Likud, uh, that kind of Herut tradition. Mm-hmm. And now, in retrospect, you think, well, you know, given what would come afterwards, um, in terms of respect for the rule of law, Likud leaders didn't really major on that, uh, if you think mm-hmm. of the last one. That has been a point, first of all, so I, I've always loved the phrase, there are judges in Jerusalem, and the, it was a tr- extremely kind of Zionistic statement, as if, you know, we are, we are now a nation that governs itself. We have our own judges, and so let them get on with it. But, and so, so for a long time, that has been a source of pride. Outside Israel too, I think that is, you know, uh, on borrowed time a bit. Haaretz, that editorial okay. I quoted, began by saying the High Court of Justice has again proved that it is unmatched as a rubber stamp and whitewasher of the injustices of the occupation. So they're sort of saying, look, that's an old kind of PR thing that liberal Zionists, liberals outside Israel really clung to, at least the Supreme Court would do it. He's saying, or rather the editorial here is saying, no longer. And it notes, by the way, that one of the three judges who made this most recent decision uh, mm-hmm. about who was kicked out of the firing zone and who's allowed to keep their homes, one of them, David Mintz, is himself a settler. And the institution maybe no longer has that kind of pristine standing, internally in liberal eyes, it once had. You're absolutely right, though. It gets heat from the right as well. And, you know, maybe there's always the argument that says, we're getting attacked from left and right, we must be doing something right. And I remember once uh, somebody saying that to me, it's possible that's true. But he said, alternatively, maybe you're just getting it doubly wrong. Um, If you're getting attacked from both sides, you know, it's not necessarily uh, a guarantee that you're uh, of wisdom. I think we are fast approaching that moment in our um, unholy schedule in which uh, we will uh, devote an entire program 
to discussing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the ways to solve it. Because, again, I, I think, look, you can find, uh, I'm serious about that discussion, by the way. Yeah. I think you can find many things that Israel uh, is doing wrong. By the way, I think you can find many ways uh, in which the Palestinians are, are wrong. But the at the end of the day, um, instead of, you know, we, we can sit here forever, but I think what is important is to say, okay, but people who care about both peoples, right, and they want to solve this. What are they supposed to do, right? There are many questions here to be asked, uh, which I think should be asked. But again, at the end of the day, you have people who are automatically triggered against Israel. I'm having a hard time talking to that crowd. And I think the people who are really worried and concerned about the future of Israel as a democratic and a Jewish state, again, should ask themselves very deep and important questions about how to uh, solve this and the words terror and the words Hamas and all kinds of and, and incitement. All those words also need to be part of the conversation to make it an honest one about how to really uh, come out of this the situation that we're stuck in, honestly, as you say, for 55 years. Yeah. Stuck is such a good word, actually, for it. It really is a good word. I mean, um, that's the feeling, actually, of feeling stuck. But also it's sort of the reality that it is both sides, actually, are just stuck in this terrible cycle. Should we lighten our load yes, just a smidgen yes, by offering up some awards? I look at the award, the trophy that I'm holding in my hands as I'm about to hand it over. And I worry that this is not going to necessarily light, lighten too much, but it should be a little bit. It's part, I mean, this is one of those stories where you read it and you go, sort of, Gavald, really? How did this happen? <laughs> so, but I think as a chutzpah nominee, we have to nominate the particular uh, flight attendants of the Lufthansa, German national carrier, who decided that they would boot off um, a flight, uh, a group of ultra-Orthodox passengers, uh, after some of them, this is the crucial point, had refused to wear masks, um, necessary obviously against COVID. There was a situation where a flight um, involving passengers from New York transiting in Frankfurt for a flight going on to Budapest, and some of the passengers uh, apparently said they weren't going to wear these face masks, whereupon Lufthansa staff, so the allegation runs, blocked all passengers who were visibly identifiable as Jewish oh, from, you don't do that. from boarding their connecting flight. Mm. Um, anybody who was recognisable as being Jewish because they were wearing uh, skullcaps, uh, kippot, or had peyot side lock, side curls, were not allowed on the flight. Um I mean, the echoes here are obvious and horrible and amazing that this would be the German national carrier saying, you look Jewish, therefore, no. Um, and, and the collective punishment element, you know, because some Jews behave badly and refuse to wear their mask. All of them are kept off. I mean, the slight, you know, thing that makes me hesitate to hand the award over, but I'm still going to, don't worry, is that Uwe Becker, the anti-Semitism commissioner of the state of Hesse, Interesting that they have such a position that German provinces, states, Linda, have uh, officials responsible uh, for this. Uh, condemned the whole incident and said that to do this was discriminatory, not a trivial matter. Uh, all the more reason, he says, why the company's top management should feel personally responsible for apologising for this incident and should take a clear and unequivocal stand. Something like this must not be repeated. Good for him. Uh, but Lufthansa's crew, the actual individuals, we're not going to do collective punishment of the entire Lufthansa uh, workforce, but the individuals who did this 
uh, and refused to let those people fly because they looked like the other passengers who were behaving badly. I'm afraid that is uh, a chutzpah award is yours for this week, I think. And uh, flying quickly to them, I agree. Okay, so Mantra Word of the Week. Um, Jonathan? Yeah. Uh, We're friends. We're friends, right? I mean, like, uh, it's a solid foundation for friendship. It's not like the whole friendship will unravel if, like, one of us hypothetically, just to take a random example, chooses a mensch nominee that you might uh, disagree with. Like, it's not going to, like, break down our whole friendship, right? We're, we're, I'm bracing myself. What have you got? What have you got up your sleeve this time? <laughs> well, I will say uh, again to tease this a little bit is that uh, the mention nominee this week that I choose will probably be someone that we gave a chutzpah award to so many times we could name it after him. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with the mention award of the week goes to Boris Johnson. Oh my it's Boris Johnson. Um, and just to set the stage on how great this is, I will bring forth a few of my favorite Jonathan Friedland quotes about <laughs> Boris Johnson, if I may. Favorite, favorite one. There is something rotten in the state of Britain, and its name is Boris Johnson. Yeah, that was a mild one. <laughs> that was a mild one, because there's an even better one. We, you're used to Johnson insulting our intelligence, but in this move, he insults his own. And of course, who could forget the lovely... It seems laughable to speak of moral authority in Boris Johnson in the same sentence, but it is now plain that the Prime Minister has none. I can go on Yeah, you and really can. I'm a broken this. record on that one. What on <laughs> earth has, has he I'm done, just, so, I'm has just, he I'm done to make yes. you give me, give me sort of cardiac failure like this? What has he done to earn even the thought? It's not really him. It's like the 10th time you said the word occupation this episode. I said to myself, it's going to be Boris Johnson. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. Um, so... Uh, what he did, I'm going to have a change of heart on this one, uh, because he, what he did was that he went, and we have to say this, right? He went further than any other country in NATO, giving Sweden and Finland um, written security assurances that the UK is committed to both nations' defense if uh, subject to Russian attack. This is incredibly important, obviously, in the shadow of the Ukraine war and supposed to reassure two countries while they're in the stage of filling the application to NATO, so to speak. So I think he deserves... Um, the Mensch Award. Of course, then being Boris Johnson, being Boris Johnson, he gets on a boat with the Swedish prime minister and doesn't wear a life jacket. But whatever. I mean, still, yes, I want this to be registered as... So, you know, we were talking about... The episode about, we give the Mensch Award. You, I could have given it to that guy who landed the Cessna plane and then he didn't know how to that land the plane in Florida. Perfect. But no, no. I'd have had no, no, no problem with that. You brought this upon yourself, my friend. It will be Boris Johnson in this episode. I would have had no problem with that. I can reveal that when I heard the story about the guy landing the Cessna plane, by the way, I muted the radio for the 45 seconds because some f- listeners may know that I'm not uh, the most confident flyer. I don't love flying. And therefore, one mm-hmm. of my things is never to listen to stories about air disasters, mm-hmm. air crashes, or anything like that because <laughs> I don't even want to plant the thought. So you could have given that Mensch Award. I would have been able to register no protest because I'd have known mm-hmm. none of the details that you were saying. Mm-hmm. In this case, because we've been talking about Supreme Courts, courts, as we know, always have a sort of minority judgment or a minority <laughs> ruling. Oh, you want a dissent. I, wanted, I, I want a Ruth Bader Ginsburg-style dissent yeah. to okay. be recorded. Okay. Let the record show, perhaps even on goatskin parchment, <laughs> that I did not assent to the Mensch Award. Um, that is very much personal one coming from uh, my co-host. Uh, I do not give my next week. The show will not be. I will not be. You absolutely will. But I think it's funny. Our timing of giving Boris Johnson uh, this award is perhaps not perfect because, as you and I have been speaking, word has come that the Partygate scandal in Britain, in which Boris Mm -hmm. Johnson and Downing Street were parting the night away when the rest of the country was on a severe lockdown. 
the the Downing Street has received over a hundred new fines for breaches of the lockdown rules. It was party central there during that uh, during the pandemic lockdown period. Boris Johnson, of course, at the helm. So that's my minority dissenting. Okay, so we're moving him back to chutzpah. Let's so get the session just, guy with, just, the, with the. I'm bench. leaving that linger there, Fine. but Fine. you have, you know, you have made the gesture. In your right, <laughs> I've banged on about occupation. You've honoured Boris Johnson. This is only making our friendship stronger by being tested, your need, I think is what people would say. It's all very healthy. If you want to know more about the soap opera, oh, talking of soap opera, I finished yes. watching We Crashed this oh, week. Oh, good for you. Because we told people you, when, when I was starting. We did. We did. God, I mean, it does go on a bit, doesn't it? Eight episodes. I sort of got I the idea it. after three or four. I mean, no, but I liked it. He is great. First of all, we're going to start talking in Motek and Neshama, right? Yeah. We have to start doing that. Because, I really like that. You know. you know, by the way, there was a British TV critic who wrote about it. Goes Jared Leto. Is that how you say it? Jared Leto. Leto. Jared Leto you does. Listening to me last time. Jared Leto does this strange accent throughout the <laughs> thing. The, the critic wrote, and I thought, oh, I see. You don't realize he's meant to be Israeli. You don't know oh that. And all the Motek and Neshama references obviously went over the right. critic's head. Um, mm. Look, his performance is brilliant. Anne Hathaway, amazing. The, amazing. the the pair of them, it is fantastic comedy of thinking they're changing right. the world. Two when, narcissists, right. Just two narcissists who, you know, think they're just changing. What is it? Elevate the world's elevate consciousness? Elevate the world's consciousness. That's what we're doing. No, you're not. You're running a real estate company and you want to make a lot of money. But they keep doing it. No, I just thought it sort of goes round and round a bit. There are lots of phone calls about raising money and cash flotations and all that. And I I think they could have done it in four. But anyway, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it and I stayed with it so to I'm the end. So I'm glad I made you watch You did make me watch glad. it. But what did you think once you got to the end? I thought it was good. Look, I, I again, I saw a real interview uh, with Adam uh, uh, Newman on uh, with uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin uh, uh -huh. five months, I think five months ago. And you, when you watch it, you realize just how great Jared Leto is. Really, just channeling yeah. this character with all of his charisma and all of his Israeli mannerisms. Um, I thought that the ending. Well, I don't want to give it away to to anyone who didn't watch it. So the real kind of ending of it, I think, was a bit problematic. But yes. I, I kind of enjoyed it. I thought it was it was done. It was it was it was an excellent series. I enjoyed it. Was, it, too. it was great fun. I enjoyed it too, and I completely want to talk to you about the ending because yeah, but we won't we we won't give it away because that's not we can't fair. We anyway, can't I only got onto that because I was saying if you want more of the soap opera of you and me and winding each other up, um, finding new ways, I'm going to have to think of a mention award next week that will get your goat anyway if you've enjoyed this do rate us follow us and generally spread the word on unholy those reviews are really good because they drive up our visibility which is how that sounds there like a kind of we work thing the guys it that does. drive us bar visibility um so anyway do that and that will be great um, and we will say our thank yous uh, to our great supernovas of Unholy, to Rom Atik and to Omer Primat, Gaia Glazer and Irat uh, for original music. And we will probably meet um, next week, Jonathan. We'll get over everything that happened. Probably. Time. That's worrying. Yes, I will see you. I, I'll be here. Gonna, whether you come on like the call it, or not. I like it when you're a little cautious. I like it when you're not complacent. <laughs> I, you know, I like you on your toes. We'll meet next week. See you then.